0: Hello, and welcome to The Stack. Today is a Brazil special, and I read this from São Paulo, my hometown. This Sunday, Brazilians are heading to vote for a new president and Congress. So I spoke with two people who are covering this polarized election. They tell me the challenges and what's different about this election in particular. Enjoy the show. With in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. After spending the month of September in Brazil, covering the elections, I decided to speak with media players in the country on how they are covering this election. First, I head to the headquarters of Brazilian daily Folha de São Paulo. I must say, I am a bit of a fanboy of the paper, been reading it since I was nine years old, after my uncle subscribed the paper to me. Folhas celebrated a hundred years last year, and they keep innovating. But this election is a challenging one. I had the pleasure to meet in person Sérgio Dávila, Folhas editor-in-chief. We spoke about fake news, Folhas plans for the future, and about the elections, of course.
1: It's a very busy election season. We are in a polarized country right now, but I don't think that's the main issue. Polarizing elections are not necessarily new in Brazil, I mean, Dilma Rousseff against Aécio Neves was a very polarized election. Even if you go way back, Fernando Henrique Cardoso against Lula was a very polarized election. The difference in this season is that we have an incumbent, we have a president, a sitting president, President Bolsonaro, who is very aggressive towards professional journalism and the press, the independent press so it's uh, very difficult and we have to it's very delicate to cover this election mainly because of this aggressiveness that comes from the, the incumbent comes from the president the sitting president and and even
2: perhaps because of folha's independence because bolsonaro many times during his government he singled out folha as well saying wow business paper uh, and, and and I have actually was sitting in a room close to a lot of the historic front pages. There's one from the 28th of June, 2020 where fourier defended democracy. Actually,
1: so it's interesting that you felt the need to do that in a way as well, right? Same time, it's it's new for us, and it it's sad that we you have to remember people decades after the end of dictatorship that there's this value this most important value called democracy and that we support democracy and you should too this decision came from a fact that it was astonished for us we did a poll and we had access to to data where more than 50 percent of brazilian population wasn't born during the dictatorship so Dictatorship was a thing of the past, a memory that they don't have. So we felt the necessity to remind this or to enlighten these people, saying this is dictatorship, this is democracy, this is why democracy is way better than dictatorship. Because, of course, what was the main reason for us to do that? President Bolsonaro is a supporter of dictatorship. He always says good things about this terrible period of time in Brazil. So we felt that the need to say to people is wrong. This is not true. This is uh, the horrors of dictatorship. And this is why democracies, uh, as Churchill said, it's not the perfect system, but it beats all the alternatives. And it was a success. We did an online course for youngsters and it was a, a free course. And we have Almost 200,000 people doing this course on democracy. It was an eight-session class, and we had this huge amount of people watching this course. And it was uh, Democracy 101, the basics of democracy. And how was the dictatorship in terms of economic performance, in terms of personal freedom, torture, and, and everything. So it was important for us to do that. At the same time, important for us to do that and sad to do that because we thought these are something that belong to the past. But no, unfortunately, we have to bring it to this discussion. Sandra, so, when you mentioned the word data, Data
2: is super respected. It's perhaps one of the most respected kind of political polls in Brazil. What is the connection with the paper? Are they independent for Foli? Sao Paulo, yeah. about always being very course. curious about this connection because it's always been news. I mean, when a new poll comes out, we like, this idea.
1: Player yeah. that is speaking up is the, the
0: Brazilian Report, an online service with Brazilian news in, in Brazil. English. And They're everybody based in the country's largest city, Sao Paulo, the way, so with a majority Brazilian more, team.
1: At uh, the end of the day, I keep uh, refreshing, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Datafolia is part of Grupo Folia, which is our company, and folia is part of Grupo Folia. So we are two independent companies part of the same group. They have their own administration, their own direction, and we have ours. In fact, we are clients of Datafolia. We pay for Datafolia has its main principle is they don't do poll research for politicians or political parties. So we are the main client of Datafolia. We pay for this electoral poll, as as well as Globo does. Grupo Globo does. So we are clients of Datafolia. But of course, since we are part of the same company, and since Datafolia was born inside the newsroom forty years ago. So we have a close relationship. We discuss the, the questionnaire that they are going to apply to the polls. We talk every day about the electoral polls. We have a close, very close relationship, but they are run independently from Folia Newsroom.
2: And so, in twenty eighteen, I mean, fake news was a huge problem in Brazil. I mean, massive. I never seen it like this before. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel that the big media outlets, including yours. You kind of learned a little bit how to tackle it. I do think this election, perhaps it's less of a problem or, or not. What, what do you think? That's that's my impression from from what I can see.
1: Well, fake news exists since news exists. So every time you have someone telling or trying to tell the truth, you have someone trying to tell the opposite. So fake news is, is a thing of our profession from the beginning, centuries ago. But yes, I agree with you that that was the main issue of 2018. Fake news was a big issue. I think not a small part of Bolsonaro's victory is, is due to the spread of fake news by then. We ran a headline back then by Patricia Campos Melo, one of our main reporters that exposed this. Groups of businessmen were paying for fake news WhatsApps being spread between the first and the second round of 2018 election. That was maybe what was the big scoop in in that election. But I think that since then, all the news, the professional news outlets and the government TSC, the, the electoral court, and most important, the big tech companies, they did their homework and they are more prepared to deal with fake news today than they were four years ago. When I say they, I say we, because we are more prepared to deal with fake news than we are four years ago. But that doesn't mean that fake news is somehow fixed or disappeared from public view. No, they are already there. They learn how to to keep spreading fake news. But I think all the the actors involved in bringing good news to the people are more prepared to deal with this issue right now. And Sergio, uh, in the UK, most newspapers they declare their vote in an
2: election. I have a feeling Brazil don't have tradition in this culture, but did ever, did Florida ever support a candidate or are you planning to or, or is it a completely different culture? Because I think it depends country by country.
1: I would say it's a very anglophone thing to, mm. to do that because UK does that and the US does, does the same. Newspapers have this tradition to declare their vote. We don't do that in Brazil with exceptions. We started São Paulo, our competitor did that in a couple of elections. I think that Veja Magazine did that once or twice and other outlets, but it's not a common thing in, in Brazil. Folha has in its Manual da Redação, which is our constitution, one of the main points of this constitution is that we don't support any candidate any elections. We feel a lot more freer, we feel a lot more free to do our jobs if we don't have any previous connection to any candidate. It's, it's, uh, it's easier to do our, our job, what we are paid to do by the readership. So we are planning to keep this way. Very interesting. And, and Sergio, how is the editorial market in Brazil?
2: I think last time we spoke, I know Folia was doing very well. Digital subscriptions. You know, I personally love the one, but I see in Brazil there are less newsstands. I mean, that's a fact. So I'm sure it's harder. But how's it going in terms of subscriptions? I know Brazil's economy is not at at its peak at the moment. Yeah. So what do you have to say about
1: that? Yeah, I think that it's the the reality in in all the main markets in the world, not just in Brazil. But yes, it happens here. Uh, two, we now have three hundred and sixty thousand subscribers, and three hundred thousands are digital subscribers. So our main market now is in the digital field. That's no doubt about it. But at the same time, we have a, a very solid and stable basis of sixty thousand print subscribers that they don't seem to go anywhere, and. I don't know if they are going to keep declining, this number, these figures are going to keep declining in the coming years, or if they are already, that's the size of our print readership and that's the way it's gonna be five years from now, 10 years from now. If you compare with the book market, the e-book didn't kill the print book. In Brazil, actually, during the pandemics, the print book sales are growing since 2020, year after year, so, I always remember a quote from Umberto Eco, the the Italian writer. He had this definition about what he called the perfect object. A table is a perfect object. There's not much you can do to improve a table. A table is a table and always going to be a table. And he said that the book was a perfect object because it's very portable. You have the touch feeling that you can replace for anything else. Maybe such a complex country bring newspaper but is a perfect i object spoke with the brazilian for, reports found our case Ustavo 60 000 uh, subscribers maybe yeah. that's, well, that's the it thing for this week's show my thanks well, as, uh, ever, as long as they are here are and meeting, as long as feel they feel are to write going, right to meet this, going to keep We're doing this platform
2: for me is the perfect object because i was telling like even today's edition is an incredible uh picture here in the São Paulo's downtown, you know, it's, it's really it's something that you can play with. And Sergio, my final question to you is that we were discussing before the interview, how Folha loves adding new colonies. It's always fresh, which is great uh, as a reader. Of course, you don't change the main things, but what do you have in the bag? I mean, I know Folha a 100 years. I mean, is there anything you, you, you can tell us? Or, you know, election coverage, of course. <laughs>
1: Yeah, we, well, it's good that you mentioned that because we, we feel that way too. We always, we always want to have something in the back to, to surprise our readership, to take our reader out of his comfort zone. That's our motto. My predecessor, Otávio Frias Filho, who was uh, the publisher of Folia for decades, and he passed away three years ago, four years ago, actually. He used to say that Folia has to be a newspaper that's not for the faint of heart. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be a newspaper that you read and then you say, well, it was okay, just okay. We want to take you out of your comfort zone, and I think that's why Folia is Folia. And yes, we, we have a couple of tricks in our backs that we are going to release to the end of the year. I'm not at liberty to discuss that now, but yes, you can wait to be surprised.
0: And with this election, interest in Brazil worldwide has increased. And a media player that is picking up on this is the Brazilian Report, an online service with Brazilian news in English. They are based in the country's largest city, São Paulo, with a majority Brazilian team. To bring a Brazilian perspective for such a complex country, but in English. I spoke with the Brazilian Reports founder, Gustavo Ribeiro.
3: The idea came a little bit by accident because um, I was living in France at the time. And I was doing some freelance work for a French website and I was covering Brazil for them. When I turned in my first article, the editor said, oh, it's, you see the difference if it's a Brazilian writing about Brazil as opposed to a French reporter writing about Brazil. And that was a sort of like light bulb moment for, for us, for me. And also because, um, so I lived in France for four years and every time I was reading a piece by uh, a foreign paper on Brazil I usually would complain a little bit like oh it's not necessarily like this this is not necessarily 100% accurate or oh this is the reporter applying a an European or a North American filter to judge Brazilian reality without taking into account some of the specificities of brazilian reality and i remember my wife then was like okay so why don't you stop bitching about it and do something so it was a little bit of both that ignited the idea when i came back to brazil i started another company called plus 55 in reference to the phone code for brazil uh, but I had other associates, and I wanted to do what we do at the Brazilian Report, which is focusing on politics and economics. They wanted another thing, more general news, more culture. Or We split up after a year or so, and then the Brazilian Report came to be.
2: And I agree with you about Brazil, because Brazil is actually a very complex country. I also, you know, I love some some of the work from the foreign correspondents, but I think it's nice for people to read in English, but with a view from a Brazilian. And tell us about the English, Is there, are there any kind of people from outside Brazil in your team? How how do you make sure, I mean, I'm sure your English is, is, is perfect, but how do you look into that side of things about, uh, you know, the, the grammar, you know, the, the language?
3: Uh, we have a Scottish editor who does the final edit, so uh, nearly every single piece that we publish in the Brazilian report goes through two rounds of edits one by me usually and then the final touch by a scottish editor he used to do correspondence work for the daily telegraph he's here for 10 plus years and he has a deep knowledge of brazil i mean he's what 30 and he has been since he was 18 or something so he's almost as Brazilian as he's Scottish, I would say, in many ways. So he does have a deep knowledge of Brazil while also being a, a native English speaker. And if I may just interject, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily that it's a specific thing about Brazil, the fact that a lot of foreign correspondents do not necessarily fully grasp all the complexities. I think when we read Brazilian newspapers about, with articles about other countries, for instance, my wife, she's French, and oftentimes she says, well, I mean, not necessarily like this. So I think it's something that is quite common, what we wanted to have a Brazilian voice in English, because that's the uh, language uh, used for the inter- international conversations, and uh, we wanted the Brazilian perspective about our country. So not to take anything away from foreign correspondence, but I think we have that touch that sometimes also brazilians miss when they're talking about other countries tell us about
2: the size of brazilian report we're here in this lovely building with amazing view for of sao paulo i think i missed that view but t- t- tell us a bit about the size and the type of reader are there a lot of brazilians actually reading your site for example
3: uh, surprisingly yes we have a lot of brazilians When we take a look sometimes at the emails that uh, our readers, our subscribers use, we can see there are a lot of English teachers that may use our articles for lessons because uh, instead of like talking with a silly test about the weather or about buying grocery, you're actually using something that uh, has um, a lot of meaning for the students. So we we see a lot of that. Uh, Today, our main breeder market is the U.S., especially New York, Washington, D.C. We have a lot of, then Brazil, but not necessarily Brazilians in Brazil. We have a lot of foreign correspondents who subscribe to the Brazilian report, diplomatic uh, corps, consulates, embassies, think tanks, investment funds. Most of our readers are corporate readers, and we also see that... In terms of the reading behavior that uh, usually follows work hours, so uh, it starts to go up at around like six, five, six o'clock Brazilian time, then it goes down at around seven, eight p.m. Eastern time in the U.S.
2: And tell us about the topics you focus. On. I mean, are the elections? I mean, I presume the elections are a big thing, right? Is there any something specific about the coverage? Do you have any editorial line or? Tell us a bit more how are you covering these elections, because I mean, especially foreign correspondents, it's an election that's causing, not controversy, but everybody's talking about it. People saying there's a risk for democracy in Brazil, there's, you know, there's all sorts of things being said about this election.
3: I would say our editorial line is to be fair, so fair does not necessarily mean being neutral, because nobody manages to be 100% neutral. Choosing a topic to write about is already in a way taking a position why you're writing about A and not B, it's already so uh, if we're writing about Lula, i would always like to um, ask myself, okay if Bolsonaro did the same thing, how would I react? And I think that's something that we try to do, it's try to to call it as it is, and to try to be as harsh with everyone. And I mean, that's why we were still plus 55 when Dilma Rousseff was the president, but uh, one thing that I pride myself is that we were accused of being right wingers when the left was in power. Now that the far right is in power, we are accused of being left wing. It's Yes, exactly. I mean, I learned that uh, journalism should always be skeptical of, especially of power. I mean, it's one of the reasons is to to, to bring some accountability and to try to unmask what is going on in governments. So we try to do that as fairly as possible. For instance, a lot of left-wing readers uh, take issue with the fact that, for instance, we do not consider, I do not consider, that 2016 impeachment against Dilma Rousseff was a coup because it followed procedure and uh, Congress was fulfilling it, their prerogative to... We, we can agree or not with their decision, but calling it a coup, I think, it would be a stretch, in the same way, I do. I'm one of those who say there's a risk for democracy here. We have a president who has not shied away from hinting that he may not accept uh, the election results, that he may try to overthrow the elections. So we also try, and we have tried to raise that flag. I think it was in March last year when we first wrote an article with. I think, like, more than a dozen interviews with Supreme Court justices, lawmakers, government officials, showing that there was a growing concern that Bolsonaro may try to barricade himself in power, if even if he loses the election. We also, way before the Brazilian media did so, we called Bolsonaro one of the favorites for the 2018 election, when everybody said he's a Joe candidate. When political ads on TV and radio start running, his polling numbers will plummet because, I mean, look at him. How can you take him seriously? Well, we took him seriously in 2017. And I remember writing an article, six reasons why Bolsonaro could become Brazil's next president. That was a year and a half before. So we try, like you see, talking about the editorial line, we try not to allow ourselves to be contaminated by wishful thinking, so it doesn't matter what we think, what we're seeing is what we try to report always.
2: And do you see a spike in interest uh, of Brazilian news in general? Because I I did see that, because Bolsonaro, I mean, he's kind of almost this exotic character for the international media, so I think people are curious what's happening in Brazil. Do you see that as well with the Brazilian report?
3: We started off in... 2017 with two people and one part-time reporter. We're now 11 full-time, we have a couple of interns and a few freelance contributors, So, but 11 full-time staff members. And we saw a boom during the pandemic because there was a boom in interest about Brazil, like what the hell is going on in Brazil why so many people were dying. This was a country that used to be a champion in terms of vaccine rollouts. And now we're seeing people die all the time. That meant more readers, more visibility to our company because we were invited to discuss what is go- what was going on in Brazil in the foreign press. And that has carried on with Bolsonaro. And now with the election, we have seen a spike again. But... Uh, With other pieces of news that are going on, the Queen died and what is happening with Ukraine, we saw that uh, the world is not necessarily looking to the Brazilian election in the same way that we thought it would, comparing to what happened during the pandemic. So what we're seeing is people that work with Brazil, uh, that have a relationship with Brazil, or the bulk of the people that are coming to us, so, uh, uh, yes, there is a bump uh, during this election cycle, not as big as we would imagine that we would have.
2: Fantastic. And, and perhaps finally, Gustavo, I'm just curious, how do you kind of monetize those readers? Is it, you, are,
3: do you have any subscription model or is,
2: or is all the news for free? Uh, Tell us, what what is the business plan of the Brazilian Report?
3: We are a subscription-based outlet. We started with absolutely no content for free. Everything had a lock. Mm. I think in many ways that was one of our strengths because we, in other media outlets I've worked, we have seen this difficulty in turning free readers into paying readers. So we started off by putting a lock on everything we wrote. And then during the pandemic, we started mixing it and having some free content actually a little bit before. So we started off in October 2017. So in the month, we're celebrating our fifth anniversary. And in March 2018, we started off a podcast as this sort of trying to get brand awareness. So we have 220 episodes or something like that, a weekly podcast. And then during the pandemic we started off this live blog with smaller posts like 300 words 400 words that is totally for free so this would sort of widen our funnel and to bring more readers in to say okay we're showcasing this is what we do we have deeper posts that you have to pay for so that really boosted our subscription numbers and for a few months we have invested in in mail marketing to try to okay if you have come here and you have tested why not coming back taking a a second peek and and that has bored a lot of fruit so we're seeing 2022 has been our best year so every year has been our best year so far so we are maturing because we started off like okay let's see how it goes and We have had to learn a lot about stuff that we never imagined, how the Google algorithm works. And we're a small team. So, I mean, if you're a big company with millions in investment money, you can hire people to do that. Me and Laura Kihana, my associate, we joke that we are from ceo to the cleaning person people and everything that goes between the two positions we uh, we have to do even though we're growing we try to direct most of our investments to the reporting staff so to trying to improve the tech in our website also because we deal with people's credit cards so we try to make it as safe as possible, uh, protect the data. For instance, we don't deal with people's data. We respect 100% people's privacy. So we try to monetize with journalism only. And fortunately, it has paid off. I mean, we're, we're talking about this is a country where, I think, 80 or 90% of companies close shop before the fifth anniversary. So it's already challenging to be an entrepreneur in Brazil as it is, in the media business even more so. And we're still, I mean, hanging on and thriving. I take great pride that we have built this great stuff that has meaning for a lot of people.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Aden Heaton. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at at fp.monoco.com. We're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, you can subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at monocle.com. Before we go, a little song for you. The wonderful Elise Regina with O Bêbado e a Equilibrista. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me.